This is the last message in the series, How Much Does It Matter If Christians Live Together Before Marriage? And it does deal with that subject, although it's the kind of topic that deals with sin in general. While I'll apply it to that one specifically, it's a bigger subject than just the issue that we're studying. We sang a little while back, show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me. Show me who you are. As I was singing it, I can't help it. This is the way my brain works or doesn't work, depending on your perspective. The way my brain works is, as I'm singing, show me who you are. And I'm thinking, how does he do that? Has anybody else ever asked any of those questions? How does he do that? How does he show me who he is? And the way he does it primarily is here. You're not going to find out what God is like just trancing out. You need input, revelation. And sometimes the things you find When God shows us what he's like, sometimes we're surprised. (laughs) And sometimes we're not even sure we like it. And God doesn't care. (laughs) He just is and reveals himself. Topic today, and, and why obedience is better than sacrifice. The story of four Christians, the fictional, fictitious characters, fictional, that's the word I wanted. The story of four Christians going to the same church. Let me introduce this this way. I'm just cautioning you that it might be maybe 10 minutes longer than normal. It's a, it's a, big thing that I'm trying to develop here. Oh, and something else. I got to as many board members as I could before the service, and they agreed. I think what we're going to do is shut down tonight, just with the roads. It'll stop snowing by tonight. It's supposed to stop later in the afternoon, but but the roads and everything else, we don't do that very often, but you'll see it online and everything else. Will you still love this church? Okay. Or maybe you just don't like church. I, I... Why obedience is better than sacrifice, the story of four Christians going to the same church. And what makes a message like this morning so difficult for the preacher is in a church this size, there are two groups, at least two groups, listening to this teaching. There are, for sure, devout disciples of Jesus who love him with all their heart and maybe look back with regret that at an earlier point they did live with a partner, perhaps even their present spouse, before they were married. And though completely forgiven and current and righteous in their walk with the Lord, they feel feel regret. And if they could, Go back in time, they would do things differently. They'd do things in a manner more pleasing to the Lord they love. But of course, none of us has that option. 
of going back. And I'm not here to put any kind of condemnation on you whatsoever. I said there were two groups. There's another very different group, probably not a lot, but some in a church this size. There are people who, right now, are planning to move in with their partner in an unmarried arrangement, knowing full well that the Lord they profess to love would never consider that an option at all. And now we come to the hardest issue for any pastor to deal with in a teaching like this morning's. In a nutshell, each group will hear the wrong message, for sure. Each group will hear the wrong message. The tender-hearted, married believer will still feel regret, even hearing of the sin committed in past years. He or she wishes they had done differently. It's always the case that the more devote the heart, the more painful the memory of past sin, even forgiven sin. So it's, it's painful for godly people to sit and hear the warnings in a teaching like this. But there's the other group, the professing Christian who's planning his sinful action He's not going to hear the warning side of this teaching. The careless heart will embrace the grace portion of this teaching. After all, if Pastor Don offers comfort to those who had this sin in their past, then surely the same grace will be available to me when I commit this same sin next week. And that's the message they hear. So the holy heart needlessly feels the pain of the warning while the careless heart claims the false comfort of future grace. I don't know how you fix that. And I'm hoping these introductory words can help to offer what's truly needed for both groups this morning. Most of us know the reference from which I received the title of this message. Even if they can't find the saying in their Bibles, they know the words from 1 Samuel 15, 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And so the prophet Samuel said these words to disobedient King Saul. I'm not going through the whole story, but the issue is simple. Samuel clearly says it's better to obey God than to come offering sacrifices for forgiveness. Think about that. To obey is better than to offer sacrifices for forgiveness. And this whole teaching this morning is bent on dealing with only one question. Here it is. How is obedience better than forgiveness? How? What does obedience do 
that forgiveness, very precious forgiveness, what does obedience do that forgiveness doesn't do? I'm not sure that gets talked about ever in churches very often. And that's probably because no one, including I, no one wants to appear in any way to be minimizing the glory of free, merciful, recreative, powerful, divine grace. Nobody wants to downplay that. But we still need to study this principle that obedience is better than forgiveness. Obedience is better than forgiveness. And to study this, we're going to look at four people. Meet Harry. He's solidly involved in a good Bible-based church. He currently teaches a class in the church's weekly Christian education program. And three years ago, Harry met Sally. I'm sorry, it just seemed to... Three years ago, Harry met Sally, and she too, she attended the same church. They were both involved in the church's marriage ministry with planning various events. And after dating Sally for about six months, Harry knew that Sally was, she was the one for him. They were both deeply in love, and they were so thankful that they were both followers of Jesus Christ, nothing unequally yoked for them, no way, for sure. Very shortly, they were talking marriage. They both knew there would never be anyone else, and because they were already planning marriage and to help with the astronomical expenses of the booming city rental market, they decided to move in together. Even after they did, every day they prayed for their upcoming marriage. Every week they kept passionately involved in the church. No one else needed to know the details of their lives, but sooner or later, word got out. People warned and prayed, and as much as churches can do, they were pulled out of some more prominent ministries, but church discipline is always easier to read about in the New Testament than to actually do. Long story short, which is usually a lie, they got married. A couple of years passed, time went by, they were back involved in the church, it seemed all the fuss had died down, they seemed to have proved the naysayers wrong, and if pressed, they expressed some regret, but said that church people needed to get over it because they had repented, after all, it was years ago. Perhaps they should have married before moving in together, but God is gracious, life goes on, and now they were using their experience to help other young couples in the church. They rejoice over God's forgiving grace for their sins. Seems like it was just a happy ending for sure. Now meet Larry. He's involved in the same church as Harry and Sally. And as Providence would have it, he too, about three years ago, met Patty. Sometimes they would go out together with Harry and Sally. Larry considered Patty to be the love of his life, and he too might have moved in with her, but she was resolute in her conviction that God wanted such things reserved for marriage. Now, Larry is glad that Patty's devotion won the day, 
They've been married for three years, and they share in the marriage ministry in the church with Harry and Sally. All seem to love the Lord Jesus with all their hearts. Now, everybody thinking. Now the question that most Christians feel it's probably rude to even consider. And even if they think they have an answer, they're not sure they could explain why. Here's the question. Are these two couples presently absolutely identical in their walk with the Lord? Please don't miss the idea behind the question. I'm certainly not asking if Harry and Sally, after repenting, are fully and freely forgiven for their sinful past living arrangement. There's nothing to discuss there. Of course they're forgiven. Truly, freely, completely, no ongoing condemnation. Like any past sin, like my past sin. God has removed their guilt and their sin, like the Bible says, as far as the east is from the West, and that's a long way. My question has nothing to do with forgiveness. I'm not questioning that in the least. My question is, are their spiritual lives, their ongoing spiritual lives of Harry and Sally, are their ongoing spiritual lives affected in any way by their freely forgiven past living arrangement. We sometimes sing the chorus. We sing it here. I don't particularly like it, where the line says, my sins don't matter anymore. I don't think I like the phrase. Sorry. Is it true? They're forgiven, to be sure. But are they, are they absolutely insignificant? Does it matter that I ever committed them? And when you say those sins don't matter anymore, do you mean the past sins or do you mean sins that might still be in my future? Do none of them matter? And here's the biggest and deepest question. Is it just possible? Is it just possible that there's more of a relationship between past sins, even forgiven, between past and future sins than we often consider. I said earlier, I'm not here to put anyone in this room under condemnation. I have sins too. What I'm trying to do is make all of us careful. This isn't a light question. Disciples of Jesus need to be able to do more than just equate the entire Christian life with conversion the initial reception of forgiveness. Conversion isn't the whole Christian experience. And what I want to explore today is how temptation and sin are experienced in different heart types. Remember at the beginning I said there's two groups? Do you remember? How are sin and temptation experienced in different heart types? What's the relationship between sin, forgiveness, and future obedience and safety in the Christian walk. Of course, all sin is sin. I get that. There are no innocent sins. All grieve the Holy Spirit. All damage the soul, but not in exactly the same way. And I hope you can follow me through this. And don't panic. Point number one. All sin is sinful. 
But not all sin is experienced in the same way in terms of its ongoing bondage or effect. I wasn't sure what the best word was there. I want to consider the process in the experience of sinful desire and the different effects it has on, depending on our reaction. I can think of five different responses to the experience of temptation and sinful actions. Here's five different reactions. A. In the first example, the inward desire to sin is quickly rejected. No sin is committed. This is the disciple who has somehow learned the value of sharp, instant repudiation of the very first inclinations to deception and compromise. And and the important point here is this immediate rejection of the first impulse to sin it affects the disciple positively for future temptations. I want to say that again in case I know it's a lot. This immediate rejection of the very first impulse to sin, it affects the disciple positively for future temptations to sin. He is now safer from deviations from holiness that are still totally unseen down the road. All resistance, present resistance, strengthens for future temptation, and all compromise, even tiny, innocent-looking compromises, weaken the soul for future temptation. Did everybody understand what I said there? I said five types of hearts. Second, there's the case where the inward desire to sin is entertained. This is different from the heart in the first example. There isn't, there isn't that immediate polar opposite to the temptations that came to the first heart. So even though, as of yet, no sinful action has been committed, the chances, the chances of compromised purity being sustained are diminished simply by entertaining temptation when it comes. And so, so we need to ask why. Why this slightly weakened moral alertness exists? What's the difference between someone who just instantly says no and someone who, even if they don't enter into the sin, is thinking about it? Here's my question. What what accounts for the difference in those two hearts? Is this one just lucky? How come this one was so instantly resolute in shutting the door when this one kind of interested, thinking about it? Somewhere in the past, in that second heart that I talked about, that's entertaining, thinking, mulling over. Somewhere in the past, careless habits of life have gradually reduced this second heart's moral alertness. No lights flashed. No buzzers sounded. No one forced him to spend less time at the movies and more time in the Word. No one forced him to turn off the sitcoms, mocking sexuality and purity. And he just got used to 
the moral atmosphere that he chose to breathe. Probably he started going to church a little bit less. But the point is here, even though nothing drastic or self-announcing seemed to be happening, all the while it was happening in this second heart. It always does. And that desire to sin, even before acted upon, it can't possibly seem as repulsive to this culturally adapted heart. In the exact opposite to the first example of sinful desire being immediately, forthrightly rejected and the life becoming safer against future sin in this second example, even if the person's fortunate enough to step around the act of sin, he's less and less protected from future sin. Now, while all sin is sinful, these two people will not experience the process of simple temptations in the future the same way. Now, what about when we move beyond just the desire level? What about when sinful actions take place? Can the process of sin still be different for different people? And remember, we're not debating whether or not these actions are sinful. They are sinful. All sin brings guilt before a holy God. All sin demands deep repentance. What we're considering here is the kind of damage that sin does to different types of hearts. Are some sinners, some Christian sinners, more protected by and prepared for divine grace than others? Do some find divine light in the darkness of sin sooner than others? And if so, what makes the difference? Here's the third type of heart. Okay, so stay with me. Heart number one, instantly rebuff sin. As soon as the temptation comes, close the door to it. Heart number two, even if not entering into sin, is interested, entertains the thought, looks for opportunity. Now, here's the question now. What about when sinful action is committed by either of those two hearts? Three, there are cases where devout hearts that sin experience the sting of quick, sharp conviction and are totally broken in shame, coming to rapid repentance. Just to be clear, this person doesn't repent because he was found out. He isn't sorry for his sin because his wife threatened to leave him. He isn't sorry for his sin because he can't be involved in ministry in his church. He's not weeping because of the loss of self-image or even reputation. That's not what's bugging this person. This is a better heart than that. This person repents more deeply, more quickly. Because of his sin, his heart is experiencing something alien. His heart is experiencing something foreign, and he can't accept it. Here's what he feels. He feels distance from Father God and he can't live with that. See, that's a healthy heart when sin's been committed. He feels, how can I put it? 
He feels the loss of that relationship with Father God the way you would feel the death of a loved one. Where something's missing now. Do you get it? That's what he feels in his heart about his relationship with God. He he feels the pain of it. He feels the separation. He can't live with it. The spiritually broken heart is relentlessly driven home to the forgiving Father. I don't have to tell you, not all sinners react like that. And the central point of this teaching is that while all sin is sinful, it's it's the way sin is entered into and the reaction to sin once committed that makes all the difference. There's a fourth, fourth kind of heart. There are cases where careless, professing Christians, now here's the difference, enter lightly into sin, either justifying their actions or presuming in advance on God's forgiving grace when they come to feel the need of it. You see the difference? The righteous heart, when it sins, can't bear, can't bear the loss of closeness with Father God. They feel it like the death of a loved one. They're driven back immediately. Here is someone who commits sin, walking into it thinking, It's not so bad. Other Christians are doing it. And I I can always get forgiveness when I need it. Completely different heart. Same sin. They maybe did exactly the same thing, but a completely different response from these two people. Sin is always the most cancerous when it becomes one of two things, okay? Remember this. Sin is most damaging when it's either planned or justified, planned, or justified. It's an absolute law of spiritual life. Harry and Sally moved in together knowing better, and after they married, they assumed their sin was not a big deal because after all, it was all in the past. God is gracious. God is forgiving. In fact, they moved in together thinking it would be God's job to forgive them later on. Please understand, the issue here isn't that God wouldn't forgive. His grace has always been amazing to the most undeserving of us. But the issue is, for Harry and Sally, the issue isn't just one of forgiveness. I'm not saying they can't be forgiven. The issue is because of their casual attitude entering into that sin, they've done something in their heart Mere forgiveness won't change. They've dulled their spiritual alertness for the next tempting situation that comes along. They plotted their own spiritual dullness. They made it that much easier to commit additional sins in the future. They sowed something into their heart that carries over and perpetuates future carelessness. So the effect of sin on the one committing it is largely dependent on the attitude of the heart toward that act of sin when it was entered into. 
The other variables are exactly the same. God's holiness is the same for Harry and Sally, Larry and Patty. God's holiness is exactly the same. His law is exactly the same. God's mercy is the same to both. What's the difference? Well, some people commit sins already assuming it will be fine because, after all, God is forgiving. In other words, they've already calculated on grace before they departed from God's will. Back to Harry and Sally. Remember, the issue isn't whether God forgave them for living together. If they repented, he did. The issue is deeper than that. The issue here is, even as they stand forgiven, they can't skate around the fact that they played with God for a period of time. They were pre-calculating on God's grace. And they're probably going to do it for future sins the way they did it for past sins. That's the problem. Here's why this matters so much. E. Are you still with me? Fifth, for professing Christians who drift from a repentant and careful heart, the only option is having isolated sinful actions turn into repeated habits. This is the end result of repeating sinful acts. The the moral outlook becomes different. Here's what Paul writes. They're darkened, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why, why is this ignorance in them? What put it there? Was it just God? Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous. They, they, they've given themselves up to sensuality, given themselves up. greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The most frightening word there is they've become callous. Become callous. It it happened to them in a process. That's what that word become means. Numb. They can't, they can't, they can't feel. Remember I said the godly heart, when it sins, when it actually sins, it feels the loss of relationship with Father God the way you feel the death of a loved one. Remember I made that comment? That's a godly heart when it falls into sin. But when you're careless about sin, careless about sin, and it, and it, and it says they've, they've become numb, they can't, they can't feel that anymore. So I've tried to analyze the process of sin in, in five types of response. All of this matters for my opening illustration of Harry and Sally and their decision to cohabit rather than marry. When they eventually married, did their past decision to cohabit, I'm sure it's forgiven. My question isn't that. My question is, did it disappear? And even if they ask God and the church for forgiveness and they receive forgiveness, are things exactly the same as if they had never walked into that relationship pre-planning on getting God's grace? Remember I said there are two groups? The group I'm talking to here is that group that's planning on cohabiting. 
not the group that's following Jesus and has it in their past and regrets it. Point number two. And I'm almost done, really almost done. This whole complicated process is what is simplified in the New Testament and described as the process of reaping what is sown. I spent two messages not dealing so much with biblical texts, you'll recall, as dealing with secular quotes from secular experts on the relationship between cohabiting and the breakdown of marriage later on. David Pepineau and Barbara Defoe Whitehead sum up the research. They're not Christians. They sum up the research like this. Living together before marriage increases the risk of breaking up after marriage. The longer you live together with a partner, the more likely it is that the low commitment ethic of cohabitation will take hold. And it's the opposite of what is required for a successful marriage. So there's the research. There was lots of it. The experts, they look at the factual statistics, they put them together, they observe. But we're all still left wondering, well, why? Why does it turn out like that? What's the invisible cause, the way past and present and future kind of connect? And this is where... This is where the word of God comes into play because we have revelation now from our creator, the reason for all the statistics that the whole world can see. Here's the revelation. Don't be deceived. When you see this, it means something. When we read those words, it means people like us, sitting in a church, reading these words, are likely to be what? Those words mean, this is not the way your culture thinks. This is something new. This is the Holy Spirit's way of saying, make sure you pay particular attention to what I'm about to say. God isn't mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. This means the, the desires, the inclinations. It's not talking about this. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Enter God's revelation on the mystery of choices. We're reminded that our chosen actions only appear spontaneous to us. But that's just the outward appearance. In fact, the Holy Spirit says, my actions today aren't as spontaneous as I think. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, says, today's choices grew out of yesterday's choices. I mean, that's the whole point of Paul's words about sowing and reaping. That's the whole reason he uses that word reap to talk about what you're going to do in the future. You're going to reap. What are you going to reap? The 
choices you make down the road, they're probably going to look spontaneous, free. Paul says, no, no, no. The things I do, Don Horbin, the things I do with my life for the rest of 2003 are going to be things that grew out of decisions I made in 2002. That you can't just pluck a tender heart, a holy heart before the Lord. You can't pluck it out of the air like a unicorn. Paul says there's this hidden connectedness between how I entered into sowing to the flesh. Maybe just planning, justifying and what I'm gonna reap down the road in future choices. Of course, here's the thing. We should, everyone in this room, we should all rejoice in the power of grace to cause a new kind of sowing to actually sprout a new kind of reaping with the Holy Spirit. I got my sins like you've got yours. I have things in my life that I regret. Maybe not that particular sin, but I've got my sins. And if there were no way for grace to slice in and say, Don, I don't just forgive. There's a a power to make things new. There's a new creation. No wonder John's gospel, we're going to be studying that again, by the way. John's gospel opens up. He's going to talk about belief, trusting in Jesus, belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, coming to faith in Jesus. And the way John opens up his gospel isn't with any of the Christmas stuff that we normally see in the other gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. By him was everything made. And the reason he's pointing out Jesus as the creator, because he's going to talk about for 21 chapters, he's going to say, that's what he does when he comes into a life. He creates Lessons. That was a lot to digest, you poor people. Don't enter into any sin lightly because when you do, planning on being forgiven later on, when you do that, you destabilize all the future choices in your life. Even if you sin, let your heart be broken before the Lord. Run to the Heavenly Father like the prodigal. Come to yourself with a broken heart. And that way, you not only get forgiveness, for sure, you get forgiveness. You get safety for future choices in your life. That's the part I was trying to make clear. Did you get that part? 